Welcome to the Savvy Black Birther, a podcast about all things Black birth. Each week we inspire, cultivate, validate, and protect the voice of Black birthers as consumers of healthcare in the United States. It equips our listeners with evidence-based information so they become savvy healthcare consumers during their pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum. Now here's your host, the community's midwife, Takia Sakina Ballard, certified nurse midwife. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for episode seven of The Savvy Black Birther. The title of this episode is The God We Trust, How the Electronic Fetal Monitoring System Has Become the God of the Labor Room. During this episode, we will talk about the electronic fetal monitoring system, the system that all laboring individuals are connected to when they enter the hospital system to birth. We will talk about its inception, its accuracy and validity, its use in low and high-risk birth, and the related birth outcomes. This episode will not disappoint. It's jam-packed with tons of information that you, the birthing person, have too long not known. Well, we're going to change that. Today you will learn, today you will know, and today you will be empowered. During this episode, I will use the words fetus, fetal, or baby interchangeably. Electronic fetal monitoring provides graphic and numeric data on the fetal heart rate and maternal uterine activity or contraction intensity, duration, and frequency to help healthcare providers assess fetal well-being before and during labor. Electronic fetal monitoring, EFM, is also referred to as cardiocytography, CTG, and records changes in the heart rate and their timing to uterine contractions. So how does this whole process work? Well, you know my motto, in order for you to be empowered, you must first be educated. In an effort to inform you, I will briefly explain how fetal monitoring works. Much like I explained in a previous episode, all fetal monitors, including ultrasound, detect fetal heart rate externally by using sound energy. Remember, ultrasound transducers transmit and receive ultrasonic waves. The rate of the reflected signal is equivalent to the speed of the reflecting structure, in this case, the fetal heart. In other words, when the ultrasonic wave hits the fetal heart, the signal that returns to the device reflects the beat of the heart and a rhythm is detected. When this ultrasonic energy is reflected from the heart and the transducer reverts it into an electronic signal, that then creates a waveform for display and recording um, and an actual audible fetal heart rate. So this is what you're seeing printed out on the machines um, and also what you're hearing as the beat-to-beat that is auscultated during uh, and monitoring of your baby. In general, the goal of fetal monitoring is to identify babies who may be short of oxygen, to guide assessments of fetal well-being, and to determine while in labor if the baby needs to be delivered by cesarean section or instrumental vaginal birth. And when I say instrumental vaginal birth, I mean the use of forceps or a vacuum. Now, in the process of being informed, it's really important not only to understand how something works, 
but it's also good to understand its purpose and then and then the history that goes along with that particular practice. And so when we look at electronic fetal monitoring or just fetal monitoring in general, we see that many historians refer to the time before 1750 as the age of the midwife for the number of doctors before that time were few. In old midwifery texts, signs of fetal uh, life were enumerated. So timing fetal heart rate was already in place in some capacity prior to industrialized birth. According to the medical literature, Fetal heart rate sounds were reportedly first detected in the 1600s by a physician, and in that same year, another physician proposed the idea that fetal heart rate or fetal well-being could be determined by listening to the fetal heart rate. It wasn't until the 1800s that auscultating or listening to the fetal heart rate placing the ear next to the maternal abdomen was described in the medical literature. And later that year, guidelines were published for fetal distress and routine auscultation, remember that word's listening to, was recommended during birth. One physician was credited to have established the criteria for fetal distress, and those guidelines remain unchanged until the advent of the electronic fetal monitoring system. Now, it seems in early medical history that much controversy had been had over notoriety for medical discoveries. Oftentimes, true pioneers were not credited. In my review of the vital records and health statistics in America, it was noted that the National Birth Registry and other infant vital records gathered the first concrete evidence of the social causes of infant mortality. In reviewing this literature, I came upon this quote, we were able to demonstrate how high mortality rates in industrial cities were connected to the unmet health and educational needs of children. It's interesting in my reading, I found it was interesting that they used the word industrial. And as the perpetuating cycles of poverty and illness were recognized, governmental and community efforts were made to promote good health because of this information. So it was around the 1900s that they saw that pneumonia and influenza, tuberculosis, enteritis, and diarrhea were the three la uh, large or leading causes of death in the United States, and children under five accounted for 40% of the deaths from these infections, according to the CDC. During this uh, time, half of the U.S. births were being done by at home um, by our midwives. And by the 1930s, midwives had only attended about 15% of births in America. So now fast forward to 1935. As a result of the Great Depression, uh, cutbacks in the federal health programs and, and the declining health of mothers and babies, the Social Security Act was signed into law by President uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, Title V of the Security Act provided programs for maternal or maternity, infant, and child care, as well as a full range of medical services for children. One of those services uh, developed the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, the Maternal and uh, Child Health Bureau. And in a report, they published two types of reports and actually in 2010. Uh, one of the reports detailed the statistics of infant mortality in the United States, and the other report detailed, of course, the maternal mortality rates. Um, this was the 75th anniversary of the establishment of the Bureau. 
and a report detailing those statistics over the last 75 years were published. According to the report, I quote, in 1960, the U.S. ranked 12th lowest in infant mortality. During this time, methods of intermittent fetal monitoring were used in birth. Now, however, by 2006, the U.S. ranked internationally has slipped to 31st. Now, I use the word slipped because that is the word that is used in this um, particular report. And I find it interesting that they use the word slipped because going from 12th uh, lowest in infant mortality ranking to 31st is not just a slip. I mean, in my opinion, a slip would be going from 12th to 13th or 12th to 15th, but not 12th to 31st. Now, it's important for me to explain to you guys why I'm going through all of this and expressing this info, giving you this information about infant mortality. Um, but let me, let me go a little further. Infant mortality is the death of an infant before his or her first birthday. The infant mortality rate is the number of infant deaths for every 1,000 live births. So in contrast, when I was researching, I could not find a notable distinction between infant and perinatal mortality statistics in the literature until 1996. Perinatal conditions were included in the infant mortality numbers, and very little information was found to, to support the separation of infant mortality and perinatal mortality prior to this time. So in good measure, it's important for me to explain how the term perinatal mortality is defined. Perinatal mortality is the death of the fetus or unborn or baby in the uterus um, or newborn within the first week of life. According to the World Health Organization, the basis to calculate the rate of stillbirths or birth or death inside the womb and deaths in the first week of life are per 1,000 total births. Um, and that begins when the perinatal period commences or begins at 28 completed weeks um, and uh, ends at seven days after birth. And this is just a way that um, this group of um, grouping is actually defined. Some other sources define it differently. Now, again, you're trying to probably figure out why I'm going through all of this, so it'll make sense in just a minute. Um, during the early 1960s, a whole new era of electronic development was happening. We were having the development of, you know, TVs and, and different electronics. And so it makes sense that we were going to have electronic development also happen in healthcare. And so the first commercial, um, made, uh, commercially made available fetal monitor was released to the market after reports like the one that was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 1960 by a physician named Dr. Howard Hahn. He was a part of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Yale, Universi Yale University School of Medicine. Um, and in his article, a three-page article actually, I, I quote, during the past four years, continuous monitoring of fetal heart rate during labor and delivery has permitted the accumulation of accurate permanent records, which may be of value for the assessment of fetal heart rate as an indexed fetal environment. The commercial versions of electrode and fetal heart rate monitoring systems are more efficient and reliable than the research apparatus constructed in our laboratories. Um, now, this was a brief report, again, only three pages. And during that time in the 1960s, type 
typing was actually much different. So you, you actually could not fit a lot of wording on pages. And so this was uh, large printed um, information. So really three pages. It did not include a lot of um, statistics or data. Yet it was included in many um, later and uh, medical literature as um, citations. And so in the name of technological advancement, the 1960s and 70s brought about the continuous electronic fetal monitoring. The idea that this type of surveillance would help clinicians diagnose fetal hypoxia or loss of oxygen in time to prevent perinatal neurologic damage. Continuous use of electronic fetal monitoring became the commonplace in the labor room, and by the early 1900s, more than 75% of the nation's birth attendants had switched from intermittent auscultation and to now electronic fetal monitoring. So I just wanted to give you that brief background, again, because I, it's important to understand the history um, so that you can understand exactly where you are now with choices. And so we see that there has been a complete evolution of how we auscultate the fetal heart rate from the times before documentation was really prevalent uh, regarding birth and around birth to now where documentation is something that is a must-have regarding all births in the United States. So now that you have that background, it's important to understand the different types of fetal monitoring. Now we're gonna pay attention to one type more specifically, but it's really important to understand all the types. Now, fetal monitoring can be assessed um, in many different times within your pregnancy care, mostly during the prenatal period or when you're receiving prenatal care, um, and that may happen with a Doppler. A Doppler is a device that uses, again, ultrasonic waves to hear and listen to your baby's heart. So it follows the same principle that I described earlier. This device will, is a handheld device and it's used just to listen to the baby during a minute or so uh, during that prenatal uh, appointment, just to hear how the baby is doing. Now, this particular method does not involve continuous use. And so you are free to move. And when you're, the auscultation time frame is done, then you're able to move and, and get up from the lying down position or whatever position you're in to continue your prenatal appointment. Also, you'll see fetal heart rate monitoring during sonograms. When you're going in for a sonogram, typically um, you're looking at the baby and the structures, anatomy of the baby. However, there will be times where the sonographer will turn on or switch the device over to have an auscultation or listening of the baby's heart. Again, this is usually done for a short period of time, but that is another time that heart rate is actually assessed. You're gonna see again another time during the antenatal or prenatal period, and that's when a stress test is being done. A non-stress test is actually uh, using the electronic fetal monitoring system more specifically, but instead of it being placed on you continuously, it's being placed on you for an actual specific period of time. 
Typically, stress tests or non-stress tests are done anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the policy. The standard is about 20 minutes, and that is where they are listening to the baby's heart rate over that time and seeing how your baby is responding in a non-stressed environment. And so what I mean by non-stressed environment is that the uterus is not contracting. And so during that time frame, the uh, person who is performing this test, typically a nurse, um, they are looking for your baby to have specific responses in the heart rate. And so this is be, will be done um, to determine fetal well-being or to determine that your baby is thriving within the womb. Next is intermittent fetal monitoring or um, intermittent auscultation is another way that is described. And this is when you can use either a Doppler or an electronic fetal monitoring system. And you are listening or the provider is listening intermittently. And that is when, again, the fetal heart rate is auscultated for a period of time. Intermittent monitoring is usually done during times of labor or when contractions are present. And so typically in the home and birth center settings, you will see the use of handheld Dopplers. Um, and those are just uh, small devices that, again, will listen to the baby's heart rate for a specific period of time. In the hospital setting, where electronic fetal monitor systems actually are housed, you will see that intermittent monitoring will be used specifically with those devices. And that is when a belt is actually, two belts are actually placed on your belly, one is for holding the transducer in place. Again, that's the part that, that sends the signal, the uh, ultrasonic signal to the area and receives the information back to interpret it within the system. And then the, the TOCO transducer, which is actually measuring pressure or change in the pressure of the uterus. And that is those two pieces um, they're sort of shaped in a circle and they're uh, belted to your body uh, and covered over the specific areas of your abdomen so that it's in contact with your uterus. Um, and so this is how it's being done. Um, and usually when it's intermittently, again, for a specific period of time, the, the belts and the device is removed from your person and then you're able to move freely again. Continuous fetal monitoring is using the electronic fetal monitoring system, but the belts stay in place and the monitor is on all the time. And if they, if it loses contact with your baby, meaning it's not able to pick up your baby's heart rate, healthcare providers must uh, adjust the system or adjust the monitors so that they continuously have contact with your baby to know what your baby is doing at all times. Now, like I explained earlier, these different methods are used at different points within your prenatal care and delivery care um, and also are used in different venues. So typically you are going to see continuous fetal monitoring in the hospital setting. It will never be used in the home or birth center setting. Occasionally in the birth center setting, you will see a non-stress test done, but Anything that is requiring continuous monitoring in those two worlds is deemed as high risk and therefore you should not be in those two settings. So you guys know that if I'm going to give you all of this information, we have to definitely go to the medical literature. 
So I'm going to get right to the point with this medical literature because it's going to be really clearly evident what's happening. Since the early 1990s, a number of systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials have been published that do not support the routine use of EFM, especially in low-risk women. Now, remember when I said earlier that uh, the development of the electronic fetal monitoring system was specifically to look for uh, loss of oxygenation to the baby in utero or inside the womb. And that loss of oxygenation, namely to the brain, was one of the biggest reasons why this particular device was developed. That neurologic abnormality that I'm speaking of was namely referred to as cerebral palsy. And that was the biggest reason why electronic fetal monitoring was developed to look at or try to prevent that from happening. So again, when I looked at the research from 1990s, the data showed that perinatal morbidity from neurologic abnormalities, namely cerebral palsy, quote, are not caused by intermittent episodes of asphyxia or lack of oxygen that commonly occur during labor and delivery, end quote. In 1999, over 20 years ago, the Cochrane Collaboration concluded that compared with intermittent auscultation, EFM does not reduce the rate of perinatal deaths. The rate of APGAR scores below seven, and APGAR scores are basically um, nomenclature or, or terms or numbers that we um, add to how a baby is responding uh, after it is born. And so a low APGAR score basically says that we are to intervene to help the baby breathe and transition. A higher APGAR score tells us that the baby is doing well and responding from uh, going from in the uterus, depending on the mother, to outside of the uterus, depending on its own body um, as a, a resource. Now, scores greater than seven are generally perceived as the baby is doing well. So again, that Cochrane review looked at EFM and it said that it does not reduce the rate of perinatal deaths and it does not uh, reduce or, or increase the rate for those who have a rate of APGAR scores below seven or the number of infants admitted to the NICU. So again, data is showing that EFM is not doing what it was intended to do. Additionally, EFM was found to result in higher rates of cesarean section and total operative deliveries. Total operative deliveries, meaning instrumental deliveries, um, vacuums, and um, also uh, forcep deliveries. In 1994, the U.S. Preventative Service Tax Force uh, stated in a report that there is fair evidence that routine EFM for low-risk women in labor is not recommended, quote. So for high-risk women, the task force also stated, quote, there is insufficient evidence to recommend for or against EFM, end quote. The Canadian Tax Force on the Periodic Health Examination in 1994 made similar recommendations. And a technical bulletin published in 1995 from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Now, you know, this organization is the, um, the I guess, authority that's in place over obstetrics. Um, and so 
from societal views, they are the ones who are, you know, the, the standard or make the standards or the go-to for decisions regarding pregnancy and birth. And so this is what they had to say in their statement, in their technical bulletin, it states that either EFM or intermittent auscultation is acceptable. This, the bulletin also acknowledges that the risk of an increased intervention with continuous monitoring is evident. And if you think that's not enough and you need more information to sort of get an understanding, a recent review, a Cochrane review again, including 13 trials involving over 37,000 women found, I quote, CTG during labor is associated with reduced rates of neonatal seizures, but no clear differences in cerebral palsy, infant mortality, or other standard measures of neonatal well-being. However, continuous CTG was associated with an increase in cesarean sections and instrumental vaginal birth. The challenge is how best to convey these results to women to enable them to make an informed decision without compromising the normality of labor, end quote. Okay, I got to pause because that last part of that sentence got me feeling some type of way. The challenge is how to best convey these results to women to enable them to make an informed decision about compromising the normality of labor. The way you best do that is not making every laboring person feel like continuous monitoring is a must. That's how. <laughs> okay, let me move on. The Cochrane Review, are, let me just give you an understanding of what the Cochrane Review is because I think it's important for you to understand that I'm not just spouting off statistics and that they don't mean anything. But the Cochrane Review is a systematic review of primary research in human healthcare and health policy. And they are internationally, I'll repeat it, they are internationally recognized as the highest standard of evidence-based healthcare. They investigate the effects of interventions for prevention and treatment. Now you're probably thinking, Wow, it's been over 20 years since this research has been available. <laughs> well, in fact, the evidence for the effect of EFM on C-section rate has been around since the 1980s. Yeah, I said that, since the 1980s. In December of 1987, The Lancet published a review of eight research uh, trials. They were actually randomly controlled trials that reiterated, you got it, the only significant effect of continuous EFM is the steady increase of cesarean section rate. Yup, there was absolutely no benefit to health of the fetus or fetal outcomes. So I asked you to ponder the question, has continuous EFM met the expectation or the purpose for its creation? I mean, the evident response is a resounding hell to the null no. I mean, clearly, if a procedure is neither neutral or beneficial and it shows a clear risk, how can there still be ethical justification for it to be used continuously in labor and birth in the majority of American healthcare or hospital settings? So why hasn't the medical community rang the damn alarm already? I know, after this, you're probably wondering the same thing. 
It's that time in a show where we feature this week's Savvy Black Birther question. Let's hear what they have to say. Today's listener's question comes from a follower at Sakina Health on Instagram. The question reads, is checking the cervix supposed to be painful? My response to this question is sort of uh, ambiguous. What I like to say is, first of all, pain is relative. What I mean by that is pain can be perceived emotionally or mentally and physically. Pain is also uh, heightened or decreased or affected by so many uh, factors. Those include your fear, uh, discomforts, um, how you're being treated, your safety, whether you're feeling secure in your space, um, emotional things, whether you have past traumas um, or that it may also, traumas might also be uh, felt in the body as opposed to what we mostly think of as mentally. So there's many pieces that affect uh, pain. And so the question is, is checking the cervix supposed to be painful? In theory, it's not comfortable. However, every person is different and may perceive whether it's painful or just discomfort. Um, And so I really can't answer that question with all assurance or authority. Um, But basically what I will say is when you're receiving or getting a cervical exam, it's important to make sure that you are comfortably positioned. It is also important to make sure that you are feeling comforted in that Uh, process and that you are not feeling violated or um, forced or anything that is negative um, in terms of perception, because that can easily be translated into a trauma. So when you're getting a physical exam that requires cervical checking, you want to make sure that that provider is taking their time and that you're given time to pace yourself during that process. You want to deep breathe and make sure that your uh, muscles and your pelvic region are all relaxed because it will make the provider, it'll make it easier for the provider to do cervical exams. And you also want to make sure that the cervical exam is going to warrant valuable information. Uh, There is unfortunately this perception that cervical exams uh, telling us how open cervixes are will give us always valuable information. And so having a conversation with your provider prior to the cervical exam is highly um, encouraged so that you can understand what information this may or may not provide and how uh, that information will be used to further uh, promote or monitor your pregnancy or delivery going forward. So I hope that this information or my response was enlightening and that it offered you some sort of uh, reassurance to understanding how cervical examinations work, number one, and number two, whether they're always going to be painful. Again, pain is relative. Now back to the show. Doula Chronicles Reproductive Futurism 2020 is a virtual gathering in the honor of the work that Loretta Ross and Octavia Butler have done. Doula Chronicles Reproductive Futurism will follow in their footsteps to dream of and create a better future for pregnancy and birth. As birth workers, we are on the front lines of this maternal health crisis. We bear witness to near misses, mistreatment from healthcare staff, and obstetric violence. Grieving and mourning are a part of our work but so is creating a new. 
Doula Chronicles Reproductive Futurism 2020 is the space to share with your comrades what this future can look like. Conference topics include home birth, myth busting, fertility awareness, body literacy, birthing without white supremacy, and so much more. The conference begins on October 23rd through the 27th. To register for the event, go to the link in the show notes or visit Doula Chronicles on Instagram or hashtag DCRF2020. Now back to the show. What has led to the increase in cesarean section rate due to continuous EFM is largely due to the highly subjective interpretation of the EFM strip. So I just want to explain what the EFM strip is. For those of you who may not be aware of what I'm referring to, the electronic fetal monitoring system prints out a a graft. And on the top of the graph, it's very similar to what you might see in an EKG or when someone is having um, their heart assessed and it prints out on a paper. So at the top of the graph, you're going to see um, the information that reflects the baby's heart rate. And at the bottom of the graph, you're going to see the information that uh, reflects the uterine contractions. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, the EFM system collects both of that information from the straps that are connected to the birthing person's body or from the, the um, transducers that are collecting information that are connected to the birth person's body. Um, and so when we look at the strip or the information, it's either that data is either uh, spit out by this machine onto this graph paper, and in some cases, it's also um, saved into a computer system that is then added to the uh, birthing person's medical record. And so the reason why I use the word subjective, um, and it's going to make more a lot of sense in just a minute, when we're thinking about subjective interpretation, the synonyms for subjective is personal, personalized, individual, internal, emotional, instinctive, intuitive, um, biased, prejudice, bigoted, irrational, gut reaction. And honestly, in all of my years of being a midwife in both the home, hospital, and birth center, I can say that I have seen some of these uh, synonyms or adjectives to describe the behavior of um, birth professionals or of healthcare professionals as they're monitoring and managing labors in those settings. And so it's very interesting to me that those are the words um, that I chose, but I think it's a good um, definition. So it's subjective interpretation. Now to address this problem or the, the statistics that have been, you know, time after time since the 1980s have been produced out in the medical literature, in order to address this problem, the National Institute of Health and International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics has published criteria in, to uh, help in the interpreting of electronic f- fetal monitoring strips. Now, while the intent of developing criteria was to foster objective responses or objective um, interpretation, the reality is that um, it does not uh, foster impartial responses to the findings um, and using accepted terminology doesn't necessarily result in appropriate clinical response. And so what we see on the clinical floors is actually um, 
a misinterpretation of what's going on and what might be perceived as what's going on. For example, a midwife or a nurse might look at the strip and interpret it one way and say, oh, well, that looks like this. And a physician or another provider might say, well, you know what? It looks like this to me. So that that was the standard or what was happening um, prior to the new nomenclature or the new um, criteria for interpreting uh, strips. However, again, because um, its intent was there doesn't mean that necessarily things have changed. And so um, what I need you to also understand is that there is no standard for educating any practitioner of varying levels, so that means nurse, midwife, doctor, on how to appropriately read and interpret the findings. The, the uh, criteria is there, but how to do it is not quite um, something that someone would go to school and get extra learning for. Um, you can take a course, and there's multiple courses out there um, developed by uh, some by some organizations. Um, however, again, there is no standard or standardized testing to um, validate someone's true understanding of how to interpret the findings. Now, it's important to understand that when you're thinking about um, fetal well-being during labor, it's so important to understand the physiology that goes with birth. Um, and so I'm going to briefly give you a little bit of information about that. This can be a very in-depth conversation because it, it you know, requires you understanding anatomy and physiology and how the baby and mother uh, interact or baby and birthing person's bodies interact during a pregnancy. Um, and I won't bore you too much with that, but it's really important for you to understand that oxygen delivery to the, to the fetus or to the baby is happening at the level of the cord. Um, and in the cord, there are um, uterine arteries um, and there, are, um, there is one umbilical vein. And so those vessels are protected by that Wharton's jelly or that white stuff that covers the vessels and creates the unit called the cord. And in that process, the uh, placenta is responsible for um, delivering um, oxygen and nutrients to the baby and then taking away any waste removal like carbon dioxide and the byproducts of the other nutrients. And this is happening at the level of the placenta and the uterus. Um, and so when there is a contraction happening, uterine and placental flow are reduced. So it's almost like if you can think of a sponge being squeezed, the squeezing effect is the uterine contraction and the sponge, if it were wet, uh, would be the level of the placenta and the uterus and the water that comes out of the sponge when you squeeze it is maybe blood, blood flow. And so it results in a temporary decrease in oxygenation or oxygen exchange between the um, birthing person's body and the receiving person, which is the growing baby. Now, because the body is so much smarter and intricately designed so much more than what we can really truly understand, the idea that there is a temporary decrease in that oxygenation, 
I want you to truly understand that that is not like it's a cutoff, complete cutoff. It's a slight decrease. And when the uterus relaxes the perfusion back up into uh, the baby via the cord is normalized and optimized. Um, and so this is normally what happens in labor and birth, and it's an expected thing. And so sometimes when uterine contractions happen, you can see shifts in the baby's um, heart rate. Some, depending on which, which time in labor, are expected, and others might warrant further investigation and action by the um, birth team. So here is when intermittent auscultation, which is evidence-based, um, could be valuable to helping determine whether some of those deoxygenated or with no oxygen timeframes are um, an insult to the growing or uh, un unborn fetus. So when we look at intermittent um, fetal monitoring and the fact that it's evidence-based, we're probably thinking, well, why don't the hospitals use this for low-risk individuals instead? I mean, perhaps it might make more sense to use continuous monitoring for someone who's high-risk and needs it, um, needs complete and continuous surveillance of their labor um, or the heart rate of the baby during the labor. Um, but the question still remains, why don't hospitals use this uh, intermittent monitoring, that is, for low-risk individuals instead? Number one, hospital staff are not trained in intermittent auscultation, a majority of hospital staff. And it requires the individual who is monitoring the, the labor and birth to be more involved. So that means that you have to be more high touch, right, and less tech. So that means that you now have to pay attention to your patient. That means that you have to ask questions and inquire and have more hands-on interaction. And the reality is that most clinicians um, of all hierarchy, doctors, midwives, nurses, or what have you, do not have the time in industrialized settings where thousands of babies are born per year. Some practitioners continue to believe that the EFM is a valuable assessment tool to labor and birth um, management, and, and therefore um, it's a, they have this highly contagious you know, incapacity to trust birth. And I, I say that you know, in a sarcastic but also truthful way. There is a highly contagious idea um, that birth needs to be watched. Birth needs to be surveilled in a way because birth cannot be trusted. We don't know how birth is going to evolve. When we've been birthing in this world for centuries, from the dawning of time and birth has happened um, and will happen in correct settings, in settings that allow for the physiologic birth to be um, evident and trusted and valued. Um, there's also a fear that practitioners are vulnerable to malpractice lawsuits if they don't use EFM. And honestly, I can understand that fear because of the idea of having that um, EFM as a safeguard to prove that something is happening in the uterus and this is why we had to act and we saved the day. That, is ha that has been the mentality for years and years, decades in the United States. And so it's going to be really hard to uh, encourage practitioners to unlearn and to let go of those philosophies that have governed their practice for years. 
non-reassuring fetal heart rate tones is 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 the second most common reason for first time cesarean section in the US. I mean, that's got to mean something. That when we're doing cesarean sections for first time mothers, the the second most common reason is because of the baby had distress or there was non-reassuring heart tones. There's something about that. Why? Why is this happening time and time again? Why is this the second most common reason? Could it be the misinterpretation of that information? In my travels as a nurse, I have countless times, you know, seen where birth was interrupted um, because of non-reassuring fetal heart tones and, and an emergency cesarean section was ordered and the baby was delivered surgically from the birthing person's body. And that baby, it comes out screaming, totally fine with wonderful APGAR scores and healthy. However, the fetal monitoring system told us otherwise. So it's just very interesting. And I, and I make these points purposely because I want birthing people to really consider these facts specifically and, and intelligently walk through this information to make informed choices. The other thing that makes it really difficult for um, American healthcare providers, specifically in uh, industrialized spaces, to let go of the EFM as um, a continuous system uh, used in birth, it's because the, the fear of litigious or uh, litigation, really, um, regarding childbirth in America. I, I remember when I was a midwife in, in the middle part of my career, um, our insurance rates were skyrocketing and high premiums just for us to be able to protect ourselves from litigation. And that is because obstetrics is, is a highly um, litigious practice, healthcare practice. And so the fear is there for um, practitioners when they're considering their decisions when managing birth. And so when we look at intermittent monitoring, we, we understand that intermittent monitoring may also require one-to-one nurse-patient ratios. And so that means that overall, it will cost hospital systems more to employ intermittent monitoring as a standard of practice in the hospitals. Um, Many hospitals really have switched over to centralized fetal monitoring. And so what I mean by centralized fetal, mo fetal monitoring is it, it's a type of fetal monitoring system that allows nurses to remain at the nurse's desk or to be a step away from the patient, but still observe what's happening on the fetal monitoring strip. And so it has these big TVs out at the nursing desk and you have all of the patient's strips on that, that particular monitor and um, nurses can see what's going on. Now it's very expensive to get those systems placed in the hospital setting. However, um, this centralization of care um, runs the risks of, of, first of all, taking um, nurses away from the bedside, which that's their place. Um, and then secondly, not being able to respond in timely manners to situations that might've been um, preventable. Um, because again, we're just looking at a monitor. Um, I remember when I was in nursing school, one of the biggest things that they told us, and this was 20 plus years ago, was that a monitor was never gonna be able to give you a true understanding of what your patient was feeling and experiencing. And so when you're considering 
what's being put on the monitor versus what your patient is experiencing or saying, you should always defer to what the patient is saying. That was what I was taught 20 years ago, but it seems that the EFM has become the God of the labor room for all practitioners. Um, because when they look at the EFM strip and interpret it based on their subjective findings and you know, perhaps sprinkle it with a little bit of the, the standard nomenclature or the standard um, interpretations. The reality is, is that patients are, are second class when it comes down to the EFM. And so hence the title of today's uh, episode. Voice Messages is designed to give listeners a way to offer spoken feedback to show hosts. Click the link on the show profile and record a message for up to one minute. Click send this message and your question or comment may be featured in an upcoming show. It's that simple. Like what you hear so far? Never miss a show by clicking that subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, so thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the show. Here are my final thoughts on a topic. When considering electronic fetal monitoring, one must really pause and ask themselves, is this a pitfall? Now, if you don't know what pitfall is, number one, I encourage you to go back to episode two and hear the conversation that I have with Dr. Stephanie Mitchell In that conversation, I asked her, what are the pitfalls that a birthing person might not notice uh, or expect when entering industrialized birth settings? And let me tell you, to this date, that episode is very popular. So for those of you who either didn't uh, have the opportunity to listen to that episode or just want to understand what a pitfall is at this moment... It is defined as a hidden or unsuspected danger or difficulty. And I use that word pitfall when interviewing uh, Dr. Mitchell specifically because I wanted to make sure that listeners understood what I meant by the word pitfall. It is hidden or unsuspected. When we go into industrialized birth settings, we are told that electronic monitoring, or we're just going to put you on a monitor, um, that we're, we're just gonna. If I had a, a penny for every time I heard someone say, we're just gonna, I would be a rich woman. The reality is we're just gonna makes it seem like it's just a harmless thing to do. Um, or it becomes an expectation of the healthcare consumer that, oh, we have to check on the baby because this is standard. This is normal for us to do because we have to know how the baby is doing during the labor at all times. And so is continuous fetal monitoring and especially continuous fetal monitoring from the centralized monitoring system. Is that a pitfall? Hell yeah, it's a pitfall. I mean, honestly, if we look at it in a critical sense throughout this whole conversation, that's all I've been saying is pitfall, pitfall, pitfall. The reality is we have to understand that going into these spaces and be able to have the information empowered with that information to dictate how we want to be cared for. 
So in order to make fully informed choices, laboring people need to understand potential risks and benefits and different approaches to monitoring. So if you go into the hospital setting and you know nothing of intermittent monitoring and you're being put on the monitor, you think you're being served well. But if you have this information, you're equipped and with this information, you can go and say, you know what, I choose not to be continuously monitoring and I would like to be intermittently monitored. You know, you can advocate for yourself. Knowing that the evidence supports hands-on listening is so important. Um, And you have to realize that birth requires low-tech, high-touch, low-censored, calm settings. I mean, when a birthing person has their legs up in the air for their their personal spaces to be violated and seen, lights, camera, action, big lights on the perineum, and we're poking and prodding by people that are dressed in these weird gowns and have no, um, they're yelling at you, push, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, push. You got to have an understanding that there's something about that approach that does not allow the ushering of the soul, of a soul, a baby, to be something that's valued. Understand that. Know that when you go in some of these spaces, that you are going to have to be an advocate. You will have to know the information and state your position. Because the reality is that fetal monitoring is still and may for a long time be required for birth in some capacity, either intermittent or continuous. I hope that listening to this podcast has given you the truth about electronic fetal monitoring in industrialized birth settings. If you are a healthcare provider practicing in these spaces, I ask you to consider my words. Search the evidence and do the right thing. What's the right thing? to actively participate in reducing the poor maternal health outcomes in our country. Do your part. Do not continue to quietly accept the status quo. It serves no one. And if you are of childbearing age and able to carry a pregnancy, or if you're pregnant and wanna be, if you're partnered to an individual fitting those descriptions, I ask you to also consider my words. Vet the research. You have access to the same information I have access to. Do your part. What's your part? To no longer consume healthcare passively. Know the information, know your rights, and proudly advocate using a voice that is innately powered and yours. I thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Savvy Black Birther. As I always say, when education and empowerment meet, decision-making capabilities improve, individuals are confident to stand for themselves, and communities are no longer paralyzed by fear, but mobilized towards a desired outcome. Let's be radical in our pursuit of safe, unbiased healthcare. As Angela Davis says, radical simply means grasping things at the root. And you already know, I believe being radical starts with first being educated and empowered. Next week, we're going to talk about surgical birth, the cesarean section. It's just not birth, it's major surgery. 
we're going to speak with two obstetrician gynecologists, one from the U.S. and the other from the U.K. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. Thanks for joining me this week on The Savvy Black Birther. Make sure to visit my website, Sakina Health, that's S-A-K-I-N-A health.net, where you can find evidence-based information, resources, and more. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate a rating or a review. And don't forget to tell a friend or a family member. This will help me reach many more Black birthing families. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in for the next episode. Be informed, be equipped, and be savvy Black birthers. <laughs>